Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 12th episode, I'll be talking to Elle Collins, assistant editor at ComicsAlliance.com, host of Into It with Elle Collins, and co-host of the Hard Times podcast, about space, specifically young adult fiction focused on extraterrestrials and space travel. Along the way, we'll discuss classic Nintendo games, the mystery of why there was never a Bubble Bubble movie, and short-lived cartoon series that were designed specifically to sell toys. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you tell us who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. I am L. Collins, and I am a podcaster. I host a podcast called Intuit, and I co-host another podcast called The Hard Times Podcast with Megan Nielsen. And then I'm also an assistant editor and writer at Comics Alliance. I always want to, whenever someone says editor, I'm always like, is it associate editor or assistant editor? I never know, so I just don't say it. I just say editor. Yeah, I could get away with just saying editor. And I'm glad you've mentioned podcaster first, because you are a, you are a prolific podcaster. How many episodes has Intuit had? Well, there's actually one that I have not yet edited that needs to go up this weekend. So I haven't looked at the number recently, but it's definitely in the 70s. Yeah, and, and your schedule is pr- pretty solid. I think like you had a hiatus for a little while, but it was very short. And other than that, it's like clockwork. I'm, I'm really impressed, is, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you do a good job. So, Al, I know you t- you've talked a lot about being from the South on your various podcasts and on your Twitter But where did you grow up specifically? I grew up in or just outside of Morristown, Tennessee, which is in northeast Tennessee. And um, I grew up actually in a a state park. My dad was a park ranger who was, during my childhood, promoted to park manager. So we lived in a house on the park grounds. That's cool. So did you have like that free-range childhood thing where you know, the park was your backyard? Kind of. Like, I think we probably had to ask permission if we were going too deep into the park, but there was certainly so much land around there to just, you know, wander around in. As someone who is a nature kid, and I'm mindful of the fact we just made a joke about Ranger Rick on Twitter, (laughs) but were were you that kid? Were you the the animal-loving kid that knew all the things or or were you not so much interested i think i was i mean i wasn't rebellious against the idea of being like the nature family like i liked going in the park and you know walking through the woods and seeing the animals but i wasn't really that sort of kid i was very much born a nerd who wanted to read comic books and watch tv and play video games and you know not spend all my days outside <laughs> I just like that your your rebellion was, in fact, against the world at large around you. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, more or less. So you've talked about comic books and Nintendo and stuff. So, yeah, why don't you describe Young L a little bit? I was always really intense with my interests. So, you know, I grew up being like, you know, I mean, it was 
the early 80s when I was a little kid. So I guess everyone was, you know, a Star Wars kid. But, I, you know, Star Wars has this sort of avenue for even then, and I think more so in more recent years, this kind of uh, obsessive fandom because there are all these characters in Star Wars who like appear in one crowd scene, but you know have like names and biographies. Yeah, who who are stars on Wikipedia? Yeah, exactly. Although you know back then you had to buy like the complete Star Wars guide to characters or something that was like a fat little paperback <laughs> that I used to have. I, I had one of those for. I realized later it wasn't for the Transformers TV series; it was for the comic books, which I barely read because they were strange to me as a kid. But I had, it was, yeah, it was, oh, what was it? It was the the complete guide to the Transformers universe, which was like the handbook to the Marvel universe, but with like a one-page sort of character synopsis of about 100 Transformers, and I read that thing so often. <laughs> I was really into any kind of guides like that, actually. I had, I had some issues of the Marvel handbook and a bunch of issues of the uh, who's who in the DC universe. Okay. And I think that's still kind of... I, like, I feel like that's sort of the origin of, I mean, honestly, my job now, when I think about it, is that I wasn't just reading comic books. I was, like, consciously educating myself about comic books, which was baffling to all around me, both <laughs> children and adults. I've, I've heard it described once that, that that kind of sort of childhood engagement, almost from a research standpoint, it's like studying for a test you're never going to take. Yeah. Th- this idea where it's like, okay, like, and the thing is, I, I did this too. I, I did it because they were selling the handbook to the Marvel Universe from the previous year in like the $3 bin at a comic book store. And I didn't have enough money for, you know, the trades or anything. So I went and I bought like three different things and they had the binder holes. And I took one of my school binders from the previous year and made myself a little flip book of all the pages. And I thought, okay, well, if I can't read all the comics because this was pre-internet, I can at least read this and I'll know as much as I would have if I had read the comics. Yeah, totally. And always, they always had that weird kind of three-point pose. And the back pose for someone with a cape always required them to, like, loop the cape around their forearm and lift it away from their butt. And I thought that was really strange that Dr. Doom would do that. He's Doom. He doesn't need to lift his cape, damn it. Yeah, you don't want to be, like, Dr. Doom's yearbook photographer. <laughs> Especially if it's, like, you know, like, senior portraits where you, like, show up at his house. And you're like, what, you know, what kind of sittings would you like to do today, Dr. Doom? Here, you're not coming in any further. The lobby will do. <laughs> right. Then I also got really into Star Trek, and that had a whole other, you know, world to obsess over. Were you watching the original series or Next Generation? Or I watched both. Of course, the Next Generation was the one that was actually on in real time, but I actually really preferred the original series. I didn't, I didn't put this together until years later, but I basically always was into camp. And I liked the original series because it was so colorful and melodramatic and over the top, which, you know, the Next Generation... Well, I mean, the, the outfits were still pretty ridiculous, but as far as the like acting style and the plotting, it was like they ran so far from how over the top the original series was that it was kind of a bore. Yeah, there was always a little bit of a, a po-faced seriousness to the next generation where it's like they understood that they were making something important with a capital I. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the original series at least had, you know, there was that one episode where the aliens were just people with paper mache pig heads on them. And it's like, with, with no eyes, just eye holes. Like, you're not, you're not even trying. I do find that interesting, though, that you mentioned that you were engaging on a camp level and that you were, you know, accepting it that it was this thing you were seeing, but also that it was, you know, a little bit silly and a bit laughable. Which leads into the other question. Were you watching Batman 66 at all? Oh, absolutely. 
I was 10 when Tim Burton's Batman came out. So I was like right there for like the, um, the happy meal toys. The summer of Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and that was when they started showing the 66 series on cable, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I got really into that and I watched that every chance I got for a long time. I only got to see them in French because they would show them on the French version of the CBC. And I would watch them with my dad, who watched them when he was younger. And I remember specifically there was a an episode where Robin got eaten by Poison Ivy's like Venus flytrap plant, and it was cut off with Burt Ward's French vocal double going, Ah, a Batman! Ah, ah, and then he gets eaten, and that's the end of the episode. <laughs> and maybe I didn't have the critical eye that you did, because... I remember watching it and going, oh, shit, Robin's dead. That's it. And I never saw the the finale of that. So (laughs) I just presumed that was how Robin died in the 66 verse. That is is really funny. (laughs) The thing that I found especially irritating about the Next Generation seriousness is, like, they would still do the same kind of stuff. Like, they would, you know, I don't know that there's an episode where Captain Picard has to go down to a planet and fight a miniature Godzilla. (laughs) But I wouldn't be surprised. It would fit right in. The only difference is they would act like it was, you know, a big serious deal. Instead of just being like, this is the episode where Captain Kirk fights a little Godzilla guy. You know, at Vasquez Rocks. Yeah. There was an episode called Code of Honor, which I discussed previously with with Kit Walker of the Gem Jam, which was basically, instead of having Picard do it, because he was such a different character from Kirk, they instead had Tasha Yar do it and made it a really terrible commentary on gender roles. Yeah, that sounds like them. And when I say terrible, I mean real terrible. (laughs) It's just garbage. There were spiked gauntlets with poison, which meant they couldn't actually hit each other, and so instead did, like, gymnastics moves around a cage. It it was weird. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And actually, come to think of it, there was an episode where Picard goes down to a planet with a a rival captain, but they have to work together in order to fight an invisible monster, because, hey, saving on special effects... (laughs) <laughs> and but it ends up being a commentary on communication. So there you go. Of course, yeah. <laughs> the more you know. So we're talking Star Trek and Star Wars, which dovetails nicely that you wanted to talk about sort of YA sci-fi and an obsession with space overall. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. One of the things that I didn't really make a connection that this had anything to do with it until until I was older, but growing up in a state park meant the night sky was always really vivid because there weren't any there wasn't any light pollution. So I had this this experience of seeing all of the stars and everything looking so huge and cosmic just from the little hill that I lived on. And I always had this, well, there was sort of something in the air, something in the culture in the 1980s where like UFOs and aliens were like a big deal. That book Communion came out, which the particular alien that's painted on the cover of that book is terrifying to children. <laughs> but anyway, so I always had this idea that not only, like when I was a kid, not only was I sure that there was life out in space, I was like 100% certain that it was visiting us regularly and it was just being kept out of the mainstream news. I think a lot of people associate that with sort of the early 90s around, you know, the X-Files and whatever else and, you know, fire in the sky and things like that. I just think it's interesting that it, it was happening to you that early where it's like the seeds of that were already being planted. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's part of that same cultural moment. It just took a while to get to... Well, I don't know, because it was sort of... I mean, the 80s started with Close Encounters of the I, Third I was just Kind. About to say, so yeah. it was sort of always there. But it certainly was like, when I was a kid, there were like more and more kind of mysteries of the unknown type books that were, you know, in my book orders and book fairs and so forth. And that was something that I... 
that I got really into, but it didn't take much initiative on my part because it was right there being pushed at me. Okay. There's actually been a fair bit of writing around when you get this sort of liminal beliefs around cryptids and aliens and other such things and how they'll often start in remote locations. That's why I kind of perked up when you talked about how big the sky was and how there was no light pollution and it just lends itself to that kind of speculation. Yeah, and it always felt like being in the in the big park on the edge of town. If aliens were going to visit my hometown, it seemed entirely likely that they would land in my backyard. <laughs> that was just like the place that was, you know, open for them to fly into, was my feeling on the matter. You were expecting to walk outside and see a crushed garbage can and go, aha, cloaked ship, called it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, speaking to that, were, were there any particular works that, that you remember really striking a chord with you around that time? One of the series of books that was really a big deal for me when I was a kid was the um, My Teacher is an Alien book. <gasps> yes! Oh. By uh, Bruce Coville. I was going to say, speaking of things from book orders, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I was looking through these. I looked them up on the internet, and I'm not certain that I ever read the last one. Uh, I did. It It sucked. So <laughs> it's it's basically because, um, for, sorry, for those who don't know, the My Teacher is an Alien series, I think we're designed to sit on a book fair table and catch the eye of a passing kid with mm-hmm. just the right level of interest. Because all of the front covers are a sort of Mars Taxi style alien zapping an appliance, either TV or a blackboard or a microwave or something. To the point where even when the series became sort of a meditation on humanity and the other and the redemptive nature of lots of stuff. There was a lot of stuff in that book. They still kept these exceptionally lurid titles and these lurid covers, even to the point where I think it was like the second or third one where the alien was entirely peaceful and had one moment of rage where he zapped a television because he didn't like how TV was changing people. And that, of course, is the cover image. It's, <laughs> it's up there with those fantasy books from the 70s where, you know, the one female character is, who is in it for two pages is going to be the one on the cover because you need to catch someone's eye from across a bus station. Yeah, well, it's also a lot like the uh, Silver Age DC comics where the cover is always something like, a Superman has turned into a monster and now he's putting us all in jail. <laughs> See, I destroyed this gift you gave me, Jimmy, <laughs> to prove a point that you'll never be my son. Right. <laughs> That's wonderful. Also, just saying, there's an uh, there was an Aquaman sale this week, and there was a hell of a lot of old Aquaman covers like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there definitely would be. So, yeah, I think that I probably didn't read the the fourth and final book in the series because if I look at when these books were coming out, that one is a year later than the last couple, and it's 1992 when I would have been. 13 so i was probably like just at that point of like oh i don't want to read that anymore i was probably reading uh grown-up books by then so you sort of aged out of the series and were on to other things yeah well you know there's that there's that moment when you're you know just becoming a teenager where i think a lot of us decide that we've outgrown a bunch of stuff that later we might decide oh i definitely hadn't outgrown that by then Mm -hmm. you know i may not even have outgrown some of that stuff as an adult but when you're like very much 13 or 14 you're gonna be (laughs) like oh no that thing that i liked when i was 11 i'm definitely not into anymore because that's for kids and i'm all about performative adulthood right now right so so what was your transition what did you move on to well i guess one of the first adult length novels that i read was jurassic park that would have been around that time you're missing it. I'm doing happy hand gestures. 
because <laughs> yeah, I think I, I was given Jurassic Park at age eleven, and it scared the bejesus out of me because it is so. I, it was one of those books where I think I mentioned it in a previous episode. I read it in one night, d- like covering my lamp with my blanket so my mom wouldn't see, mm-hmm. and, do, and doing that thing where you lay on your back and you hold the book up at arm's length to block the light, but then you can't see, so you have to roll over onto your stomach. And yeah, it's a whole thing. And I remembered specifically, I had never seen like in a book someone disemboweled before. <laughs> Poor Dr. Wu. So glad he survived in the movies. Yeah, definitely. So go on. You know, uh, I did a Jurassic Park episode of Into It with Helena Hart last year. Mm-hmm. And one of the really weird things about that conversation was realizing how much I remembered from the book, even though I hadn't read it since. I was like 13 or so. And I think that's the right age to have those details kind of burn into your head. Yeah. And especially like reading it and then immediately seeing the movie. And not having done that enough times to really know how it works means that like everything that was different in the novel from the movie was something that I thought about as I was watching the movie, probably like the first five times I watched the movie. And I think that's why those details stick with me. So it it became a directly comparative experience rather than just, oh, hey, I'm seeing this thing and I'm also reading this thing. Yeah, it was very much like, oh, they changed this and this and this. I want to think about their reasons for doing that instead of just assuming that that's what always happens. Also, I kind of love the fact that the L you're describing is basically thinks the same way as grown-up L. No, I think that's (laughs) totally true. Clearly, you were preparing to be an assistant editor at Comics Alliance. (laughs) You know, If you'd even told me that that was a thing that it was possible to do, Mm -hmm. I mean, even translated into like things that existed when I was a kid, like I used to pick up comic scene magazine Mm -hmm. and I don't remember ever even thinking that there were like actual grown up jobs at that. (laughs) These things sort of sprang fully formed from damp corners of news of news agencies. Yeah. A small tangent. If given the choice, do you watch the movie first or read the book first, just in general? The, mov- the movie, definitely. I have never been that big of a, uh, of a book reader, just to be completely honest, mm-hmm. especially as an adult. Like, I have always done better at reading nonfiction than fiction, and I just tend to, especially with a longer work, I just tend to sort of walk away from it without really thinking. Like, it's not like I'm conscious of, like, this book is boring me. I just will at some point put it down and never pick it back up. And that's a problem I've had since I started reading books longer than my teacher glows in the dark. So for that reason, I sort of let go of, especially once I became, you know, once I got a a degree in film and could actually talk about myself as like a film scholar, it became a lot less embarrassing, I guess, to say, oh, well, you know, I don't need to read the book because the movie is what I'm what I'm interested in engaging with. Yeah, I I can totally see that. I'm going to crib from a guy named Justin Robert Young about the com- the comparative movie versus book thing because I heard him explain it and I remember thinking like that that just sort of crystallizes what I think where I think a movie or a TV series or some kind of visual medium is by its nature going to be a, a more reductive or distilled take on the on the work and because it's also immersive because you're you're looking at it and listening to it and thinking about it then it's difficult to be as in the moment kind of like you described with Jurassic Park mm-hmm. if you're always comparing because the book is always going to have more information and so if you have more information and are looking for the gaps you're not as immersed in the film whereas if you watch the film you can then go back to the book and decide what to do with that extra information yeah absolutely you've mentioned and i know i know because i've listened to to into it a lot but you mentioned studying film What, what was the sort of genesis of that well i got so my undergrad degree is in puppetry a fact which has led to me 
linking to you every time I see anything written about puppetry because I'm like, I need someone who has an informed opinion on this. Elle knows things. I got a degree in puppetry and this may surprise you, but there weren't a lot of jobs in puppetry. <laughs> Which actually the biggest problem in getting a job with a degree in puppetry is not that there are no jobs for puppeteers. It's that nobody who's hiring puppeteers gives a damn if you have a degree in puppetry. <laughs> It's, it's cool, cool. You've been studying that thing we've all been doing. Yeah, exactly. I bet you have opinions. Exactly. So I was out of school for a while, and I did several jobs. I was a restaurant manager for a long time, and then I just really wanted to go back and get some kind of grad degree, find something, some direction to take my, my interest in. And I decided to apply for film studies programs. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to Ohio University where I got a, um, a master's in film theory and criticism. Oh, cool. I think that's something that comes up sometimes in my day job at Comics Alliance is that, and I'm not putting myself above anyone, like a lot of the writers that I have the most respect for are not coming from an academic background at all. But the fact that I am coming from one, I feel like often gives me a different perspective from a lot of people in comics writing. Because, you know, I like I grew up reading comics. It's not like I'm not coming at this from the direction of comics, but I'm just as much coming at it from the direction of criticism. And I think that's good. I mean, that's it's an, another tool in the toolbox. And if you can bring that to your work, I think that's something that's going to be nothing but helpful. Whereas, like you mentioned, other people approach it from a different way and they'll bring their own angles. And I think that's what you get, that sort of diversity of thought, which... Hey, not you know, not to blow, blow smoke up your butt, but Comics Alliance is really good about that. So I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to to Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, uh, did you read Sphere? I think I did read Sphere, but I don't remember it that well. Well, I was going to say I, I think it would dovetail your experiences with you know your love of aliens and also that same kind of Jurassic Park vibe of hey, here are a bunch of people who are smart. We're putting them in a remote place with a danger, which. Oh, Jesus, as I say that, that, that's pretty much every Michael Crichton book. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, Congo's like that. Airframe is like that. Timeline is like, oh, Jesus. I feel like I've just cr I've cracked a case here. <laughs> also, don't watch the Sphere movie. It's terrible. Oh, no, I have watched the Sphere movie. <laughs> it's too late for that, but it was a long time ago. I, I remember going and seeing it, and I think it may have been the first time where even in the theater I went, okay, this is not a good movie. This is, <laughs> this is a really bad movie. <laughs> So you'd also uh, mentioned in when we were discussing setting up this episode that you want to talk a little bit about, about NES games and cartoons. So where would you like to go from here? My perspective on NES games in particular is sort of affected by the fact that I'm not really a gamer as an adult. Mm -hmm. I didn't really keep up. In fact, I was sort of like, I remember playing a Nintendo 64 for the first time and thinking, this is probably too much for me. <laughs> I like things that move around like one plane at a time. Mm -hmm. I still have a nostalgia for a lot of the original NES games, particularly like Legend of Zelda and, you know, the, the first few Mario games and Metroid. But there are all these later iterations of all of these things that I have basically no relationship with. So my my connection to these, you know, these characters and stories is all based on an 8-bit world where no one talks. <laughs> or if they do, it's to repeat one line over and over again about, hey, you should probably go up to the temple. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Zelda because my girlfriend Kimiko has been playing games since she was a little kid. She grew up in Japan and so had great access to all kinds of amazing games. But specifically the Zelda series, she sticks with the old ones to the point where her favorite one is A Link to the Past. It was one of the old Game Boy uh, Zelda games that got remastered and brought out on the 3DS. And she played that 
when we were on a trip and I'm, I've she got really intense about it and I thought okay great I've I'm not a Zelda fan but I know that my girlfriend loves Zelda games and so when the next relationship event came along I like pre-ordered Majora's Mask which had just been re-released and gave it to her and she played it for two days and put it down and she's like I don't like this one <laughs> and I'm like wonderful it's that's that was a present wonder wonderful I'm I'm not gonna take this to heart uh, but I think especially with the Zelda series where every game has to be completely different and have its own series of stuff even though it's within the same world i think you're you're risking that alienation from it's like i just want to run around and hack at things and throw chickens at people and stuff (laughs) yeah i just like i like knowing which monsters drop bombs and which monsters drop money which (laughs) monsters drop hearts i was talking with my friend joel about this because he was playing i think it was Ocarina of Time, and he's like, there's a certain level, like, if you've you've played modern games, there's a certain level of hand-holding that comes along with it. He's like, you get a Deku stick, and you get to a certain place, and you can't go any further, and unless you literally try every item in your inventory, you will never find out that a Deku stick creates fire, and you can use that to light the torch, which opens the door and moves on. And he's like, I feel like I should have, you know, gotten on my bike and cycled over to my friend's house and asked him how he beat it. Because that, that feels like the, the classic way of, you know, going to the wiki. Except your wiki is deeply unreliable, which, hey, like most wikis. All right. Yeah, the transmission of information among children about stuff like video games in the pre-internet age is sort of, it, it seems amazing to look back on. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that, like, I knew the Konami code. <laughs> and I have no idea how. I, just, I must have just heard it at school. Someone said, hey, if you do this in Contra, it's real cool. <laughs> I remember working out because I, I didn't, I never had a Game Boy, but I borrowed one from a friend for a week. And I discovered that is like, if you, what was it? I think it was if you held start and select and press AB, it would quit you out of the level and then back to like out of the game. And I thought I had discovered this thing. I'm like, oh my god, I've worked out a code. I know. It's like, if you do this, this will happen. And I've tried it on these two games. I don't know if it works on the others. I wonder if they're the same manufacturer and blah, blah, blah. And then I give it back to my friend and explain it. He's like, yeah, it says that in the Game Boy manual. That's how you close a program that's not responding. <laughs> and I went, uh, I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never, had a, I never had a Game Boy. I never had anything except the uh, original NES. I played my friend's Super Nintendo pretty regularly, so I remember a lot of those games, but I never went beyond the first one. And any other games that made an impact outside of Zelda or Mario? Well, you know, I was really, at any given age, I was always into whatever was already old. <laughs> so I got really into Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr., Mm-hmm. and the original Mario Brothers, where it's just like the one-screen levels. Oh, yeah, the one that was the um, the bonus game in Mario 3. Yes. Donkey Kong Jr. was the only one I was ever any good at. I never had, like, the fastest reflexes, so I was never really great at video games where you have to, like, jump at exactly the right moment. The sort of very twitchy ones. Yeah. See, I, I can remember that the one I played the most on NES was the WrestleMania NES game. Mm-hmm. which had the tagline of bigger, better, badder, and uh, had six characters. It was Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Bam Bam Bigelow, Honky Tonk Man, Ted DiBiase, and Randy Savage. Everyone had the exact same moveset, except for Bam Bam Bigelow and Honky Tonk Man couldn't body slam people, which my kid brain worked out because they both have gray boots. That must be the sign that you can't body slam someone. <laughs> and Bam Bam Bigelow was the coolest because even though he was a bigger character, he could do cartwheels and drop kicks and stuff. Okay. And I remember really liking the 8-bit version of the Honky Tonk Man's theme because the Honky Tonk Man had already retired by the time I was watching wrestling. So seeing that and thinking, oh, this is a cool character, and then looking back and going, oh, no, 
no, he really wasn't. <laughs> Always an old guy with bad hair. Pretty much. Oh, another game that I played all the time was Bubble Bobble. Oh, yes. Which, which then became like Bust a Move and a whole bunch of other kind of clones, but it was really such a simple concept. Yeah, it was just, you know, you're a dinosaur and you uh, <laughs> blow bubbles with your mouth and you catch monsters in those bubbles and then pop them. Yeah, really. I mean, God, it's, <laughs> it's a wonder it's not a film. I've actually, not so much Bubble Bobble necessarily, but it's weird to me with all the like nostalgic blockbusters of the last few years that there are not games based on a ton of classic Nintendo movies or games <laughs> movies based on the games is what I'm trying to say yeah totally I mean hey if we can have a battleship movie right we can certainly have like well actually no we can't have Operation Wolf because that's pretty much every war movie ever but something like Hogan's Alley as like a postmodern gangster western where you have to go into an alley and quick draw with with random people and not shoot the civilians that casually wander in could happen. Right. And it would still be better than the Doom movie. We're just like like Metroid, where you have, let's say, Shirley's Theron in a spacesuit. Okay, you have my attention. Right. <laughs> and, you know, she's like trapped on an alien space station trying to take down the mother brain. Like, it's not even, va- it doesn't even seem vaguely difficult to, to adapt. Even Super Mario Brothers, which, you know, was a terrible movie. Oh, yes. But now, when you actually have... Like, the problem they had then was that they couldn't actually create a Mushroom Kingdom because it would have been built out of paper mache <laughs> Now you could actually do the Mushroom Kingdom. You could actually have Koopas and Goombas that are actually little mushrooms and... We- and weird uh, chicken turtles. turtles. walking around <laughs> instead of guys in suits with little dinosaur heads yep. or whatever. Also, L. Collins, I charge you with this sacred task. You would need to cast, for Cast Party, that theoretical Mario Brothers movie. Well, yeah, I could do that. It's like, right, what Disney Channel kid looks good in a mustache? <laughs> well, what about cartoons? That was That's kind of the last thing on your list. Oh, man, what cartoons didn't I watch? <laughs> so I grew up with... So, okay, I'm trying to figure out how many steps I have to take this back for it to make sense. Get a run-up. It'll be okay. <laughs> so I identify as genderqueer as an adult, but... You know, as a as a child, I was, you know, assigned to be a little boy. And it didn't occur to me until I was somewhat older to uh, question that. But I also had a sister who was three years younger than me. The consequence of all this is that I basically watched all of the, like, boy cartoons, you know, quote unquote, and all of the girl cartoons because especially since we lived out in the middle of a park, like whatever, whatever either me or my sister put on the VCR, the other one was pretty much watching. Mm-hmm. So in addition to Transformers and G.I. Joe and Thundercats and Silverhawks and Masters of the Universe, I also have memories of watching, uh, you know, Rainbow Bright and My Little Pony, which was terrible back then. Oh, indeed. And uh, uh, I, I, can, you know. I can sympathize with this. My sister was two years older and... My dad would split the difference because he would tape stuff that would come on before we got back from school or that we didn't get to see, but it would all be on the same tapes. So all of the Transformers tapes that I watched repeatedly and, you know, in high school and such also had every second episode was a gem episode, Mm -hmm. which again, like you're talking about absorbing stuff from childhood, like, which has led me to understand the majority of gem gem episodes without having to rewatch them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but no, the, you mentioned My Little Pony, and I was thinking of going to see the My Little Pony movie about the schmooze. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we saw that. I remember that. Anthropomorphic purple lava that makes you evil. Yes. Which was a thing. 
all the cartoons, I think, had a movie at some point back then. Because mm-hmm. there was definitely the My Little Pony movie, the Rainbow Bright movie, the G.I. Joe and Transformers movies, the DuckTales movie. Oh, that's right. There was a DuckTales movie. See, I had the G.I. Joe movie was the first VHS I ever bought with my own money. I have very distinct and fond memories of that. I think Brett, Brett White and I had a whole afternoon where we went back and forth about that. But I never actually watched the DuckTales one. Was it just like an extra long episode of the show or was there actually like... That's what I remember. It was definitely, it had a subtitle. It was like Secret of the Lost Lamp or something. Mm-hmm. And it was a, you know, it was a globetrotting adventure, as you would expect, where they travel all over the place. I think there's a hot air balloon that plays a major <laughs> role in it, although it might be thing of the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie now that I think about it. That's okay. It's a lot to keep up with. <laughs> what about, like, I, I realized that for all that DuckTales seemed to get everyone, it seemed to be a smaller slice that liked Darkwing Duck. Yeah, I was never that into Darkwing Duck, which is weird because... It seems like it would be right up your alley. I was going to say, like, I was actually into The Shadow as a nine-year-old kid, mm-hmm. so how could I have not been into Darkwing Duck? But I think maybe I just was watching other things by the time that it was on. Uh, the timing thing again. Just never quite, yeah, it just never quite caught me. See, I, I had younger siblings, so it was one of those situations where it was always on and so well technically like i was just old enough for things like animaniacs because they were they were clever and i could i could still enjoy those and not get teased about it but for stuff like darkwing duck and then much later with my youngest sister with things like pokemon uh, and and sailor moon i was able to get those without having to actively seek them out mm-hmm. so with darkwing duck it's like you mentioned the shadow and as you say that like my brain is putting it together okay so it's like it's the shadow meets batman 66 meets current Batman, meets DuckTales. So it's both, you know, it's a little bit more high impact than a DuckTales. Like, you know, there's fighting and people getting bopped on the head and stuff. But then there's also ridiculous villains and, you know, a lot of monologuing and cracks about the superhero medium. And I still say that in that first Avengers movie, they're, they're, when Hulk grabs Loki and, like, pounds him up and down mm-hmm. like a cartoon... I swear that is a visual shout-out to when Stegmite grabs Darkwing Duck because he thinks he's on fire and whacks him back and forth <laughs> screaming, put out the Darkwing, put out the Darkwing. Because I saw it in the theater and it just struck me. And I'm like, oh, they're doing the Stegmite thing! And yeah, apparently I, I, was, I might have been the only one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've quietly hidden that away in my head. I mean, I wouldn't rule that out. It seems like a Whedon thing. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to to bring up? Well, I think that, you know, we talked about DuckTales and, you know, I mentioned Transformers and G.I. Joe and Jim and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I think part of when I look back on all the time I spent watching cartoons as a kid, sort of like the ones that didn't really stick around that were probably only there for like a few episodes that they made to sell toys and then never really had an ongoing life. Like that's sort that's sort of the tapestry that sticks with me when I think about when I think about cartoons. Stuff like um Dino Saucers, which were about <gasps> dinosaurs from outer space. I only found out about this like literally three weeks ago. I was following a link on T V <laughs> Tropes and someone linked to it and I'm like, wait, what? So for, for those who haven't heard of it, do you want to explain dinosaurs? Well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple high concept. There are dinosaurs from outer space. They talk and have human intelligence. They look like various kinds of dinosaurs that we recognize, but somewhat more humanoid and wearing like space armor. There's like the good dinosaurs and the bad dinosaurs who, of course, have battles on Earth with, you know, the help of human allies. Separate and legally distinct from Dino Riders and Denver the Last Dinosaur and Extreme Dinosaurs and, yeah. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, I definitely have memories of Dino Riders as well. Oh, what were they called? Visionaries? What were Visionaries? I don't, I don't think I remember those. Visionaries, the cartoon was set in the future, mm-hmm. but it was like another age of magic comes upon the earth. As you do. And the toys were like knights in armor, but they had holograms on their chest plates. Oh my god, I, I had one of those! You just made, like, again, audio medium, but you would have seen the face I just made of discovery of going, oh my god, yes! Yes. I, I was always really confused by it when I was a kid. I'm like, I, I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the wizard Merlin. I don't remember if they called him Merlin or not, but there definitely was like a Merlin character who like reemerged in the first episode of the cartoon and gave these certain people these like, I forget what he called them, like crests or, you know, sigils or whatever that would give them power in the new world of magic. And those were the holograms that they had on their chests. Oh, I was going to say uh, up there with the mystic knights of Tirnanog for, you know, Arturian accuracy. <laughs> the mystical knights of Tirnanog were, a little bit after I stopped paying attention, but I remember them just for their like elemental armor. <laughs> I was just thinking now about because I, I would because my dad would go on business trips a lot when I was a kid, and would like come back with a random toy he'd find at the airport of some other place. And I ended up with I think mixed in with my Transformers. I had one of the Visionaries. I had a uh, like a Macross Valkyrie, which he had mistaken for a Transformer. <laughs> I had some rock lords, which were maybe the worst concept on the planet. I remember the rock lords. They were, I think, a spinoff of the GoBots. Yeah, and there's like, you, they, it's like something out of the movie Big. They turn into a rock. They literally turn into rocks. And not just rocks, but terrible rocks that didn't really click together. And so they would just be this sort of crumpled thing. <laughs> you couldn't really, and it's like their whole thing was, ah, I can hide and be a rock. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or if I'm falling, I can turn into a rock and land as a rock. Stone Boy from the uh, Legion of Substitute Heroes had that power. And he was in the Legion of Substitute Heroes. <laughs> so, El, if people want to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, you can find my podcasts at intuitpodcast.com or hardtimespod.com. Or you can just search for those in the iTunes store wherever as Intuit with El Collins and the Hard Times Podcast. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at another L and you can see my work pretty much daily at comicsalliance.com. And for those kind of wanting a primer for Intuit, the last few episodes have been just like fantastic. Like they had, you had Andrew, is it Ila? Ila? I never know how to say it. Ila. Yeah, you had Andrew Isla on to talk about Gremlins 2, which was great. You had uh, Connie Cardwell on to do Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And my favorite, you had Kieran Shiak on to talk about his feelings around All-Star Superman, which was a lovely episode. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. I really did. Kieran's a lovely person. And I think that like hearing him talk about that really cemented that, God damn it, I have to read All-Star Superman, don't I? Oh, yeah, you definitely do. I know. It's one of those ones where it's been on my wish list on Comixology for a long time. But I like after hearing him talk about it, I now feel like I have to go dig up a really nice, like, prestige hardcover version. You know, treat my local comic book shop. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for, thanks for coming on. This has been really fun. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you for having me.
Thank you very much to Elle Collins for her time. Elle described herself as a beer drinker from a family of whiskey drinkers, so I've come up with another beer and whiskey combination. While the whiskey should probably be Tennessee whiskey to fit with Elle's background, I couldn't stand to have any Jack Daniels in the house, which was the only Tennessee whiskey available in Australia, so I've substituted Maker's Mark. Sorry for the lack of authenticity. I've dubbed this cocktail the Brock's Home. In a Boston shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of bourbon, a quarter ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of maple syrup, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Shake vigorously for 30 seconds and strain into a highball glass. Top up with beer and garnish with half an orange wheel. I've found that Old Speckled Hen English Brown Ale works a treat. Light and crowd-pleasing, this drink turns out to be surprisingly complex when given its time. However, it does not glow in the dark. Enjoy! They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. Pools of sorrow, waves of joy, are drifting through my open mind, possessing and caressing me. The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, just send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. Fair morning, Snapchat is mostly pictures of things I'm about to eat, my two cats, and my dog. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified. You can donate as little as a dollar a month and gain rewards like early access to episodes, physical mail, and other cool things. Also, I would really, really appreciate it. You can also help the show by going to the iTunes store of your country and giving the show a rating and a review. It helps with discoverability, and I'll give you a shout-out on the show. We're also just over a week away from the Math of Me mailbag special, as hosted by Margaret H. Willison, my very first guest. If you'd like to ask me any questions about the show, about myself, or really anything, force me to answer your questions, send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com with the subject line, mailbag. If you get your questions in before the 7th of November, we'll read it out on the show, and I will be forced to answer. Won't that be nice? Next week, my guest will be Jessica Fletcher, the other half of Rosie and Jessica's Day of Fun, and we're going to be talking about tween fiction based around hobbies, including a series I've never heard of before called Scrambled Legs, which sounds vaguely terrifying. Join me, won't you? I didn't really do anything today. I watched a bunch of episodes of uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Oh, yeah, because Andrew and JoJo have been doing that, too. Yeah, well, they watched them all in, like, two days. Which is terrifying. Which, yeah, I couldn't even (laughs) contemplate doing, but they got me thinking about it, so then I'm doing a, you know, a rewatch at a more human speed. (laughs) Well, you've been mainlining Steven Universe, right, for your recaps. Yeah, well, that's basically what I was doing all summer. 
when we decided to do recaps of Steven Universe, like we had no way of even possibly imagining that they were going to run it five nights a week for a month. <laughs> You're like, this is me now. This is all I do. <laughs> and it's such a fast turnover because we have to, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can't wait a week to do a TV re- recap. That ruins the whole point. Nobody looks at it. Yeah, it's so you have fresh. to like always be ready for, you know, especially when we're doing those two-handers like I, w- I was doing that one with Katie Schenkel and you know you have to both be ready to write basically when the episode ends yeah uh, my friend Joe Thornley does recaps of Australia's Next Top Model and a couple of other shows and even with the, st- the fairly quick style in which she writes she has to ask the network to give her because she has a produce.com she occasionally gets sneak peeks of stuff for, like for the finale because she's like there's, there's no way you have to be so, you have to be ready to post it the moment the episode finishes yeah. And so it's, it's to get that traffic. Because, hey, traffic, right? Whereas when I, rec- when I recap stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm taking like three hours to recap a 22-minute episode of something because I have to... It's a show from 2007, and so those who haven't seen it since 2007 need to know what happened. They can't just know your feelings about it. Yeah. Which is exhausting. No doubt. I was going to say, I, I have no idea how, how Chris Sims does it because, like... All this stuff, like on Sailor Business, I'm listening to that going, okay, this is really detailed, but you're also doing, like, how many podcasts a week? <laughs> well, you know, I I feel like I know Chris some secret, and I don't know if I can get away with revealing it, uh, but, I'm, but I will. Yeah. Uh, is that Chris Sims, you know, he's always on top of whatever is being talked about in any given podcast episode but that's all he does on all of his podcasts he everyone he works with is the person doing (laughs) the production work the editing even when i've guest co-hosted war rocket ajax like i did the editing that week (laughs) so he's the he's the color you're the play-by-play yeah all he has to do is show up and be ready to talk and since he's you know generally talking about something that he would be ready to talk about anyway. It uh, balances out his amount of prep work, I think. <laughs> of course. Oh, I wanted to ask you, um, did you watch the Cruiserweight Challenge? I'm pretty sure you have. I think you've seen me tweeting about it. I watched, I currently have not watched all the episodes. I watched the first few, and then I sort of got behind, and then they were doing the live finale, and I'd already heard who the finalists were, so I went ahead and watched that rather than you know, just get spoiled for it later. But there are some episodes in the middle that I've not yet watched. Yeah, what, what I was liking about it, and admittedly I was watching it, you know, alone at home with some beers uh, while my girlfriend was out at her uh, her friend's hen's night. And so it's like I was I get to be very kind of detailed and kind of sink into it. But I like, because it is such a, a clean series, it takes so little to have someone be a heel. Yeah. All it takes is, oh, I don't want to shake your hand, or I'm going to hit you before the bell. And that's it. You're a heel, and you're working heel for the rest of that match. And so you get somebody with, like, you know, Brian Kendrick, who can just be just a little bit of a dick. Mm-hmm. Like, not even have to be, like, full-blown heel, like, cheating or anything. But just, like, you know, someone does a, a fancy kip-up to, to reverse his move, and he just kicks him in the junk. And it's like, yep, done. You're a heel. You're a bad guy for the rest, <laughs> for the rest of this match. Yeah. In some of those matches, I think that the heel is whichever guy dances less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was something I was I was saying to, to Chelsea on Twitter, but it's like everyone knows how to sell in that series, mm-hmm. and so it makes everything seem like a war, and it's great. Like um, the the reason I started watching it is because like I w- it was one of those things where 
I was going to be like, okay, I'll watch it eventually because I go on and off with the network because there's only one TV in the house and we watch a lot of other things. And so I'm like, okay, one, one weekend I'll just go and I'll mainline the whole thing. And then I read last week that Akira Tozawa is in it. And he was one of the, the folks that I saw when I went to Dragon Gate in Tokyo at the Karakuen Hall. And he was like my standout of the evening because he's really funny and also a very strong worker. And I'm like, okay, no one on the internet told me that he was in this tournament. I am ashamed of all of you. I'm really upset. And so I watched it. And his, he did like a 19-minute match that was back and forth the entire way. But he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. And he was just like randomly screaming. And the Full Sail crowd was screaming back at him. And out of nowhere, when the finish came, it was just like beautiful and wonderful. And I'm just like, oh, this is everything I want. This is all I want. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I will say that I was, I was a little annoyed with the way that people talked about the ending of the tournament. Just because part of what seems so enjoyable about the Cruiserweight Classic when it was in progress is that it was so unlike WWE product that we're used to. Mm-hmm. And then when it got to the ending... It felt like, and part of this, I think, was because, like, the you know, the winner of the tournament was not really one of the favorites of the tournament for a lot of people. And I actually went and looked it up because he was one of the ones where I gushed about his opening um, match because it was really smooth and, and beautiful. And he had this wonderful um, series of, like, head scissors uh, takeovers that just looked great when it could have looked really terrible. Mm-hmm. And, like you know, a half dozen different submission moves in a row. And I'm just like, this, this guy, you know, TJ Perkins is really interesting. And he's got great shoes, which always gets my attention. <laughs> uh, and then I looked up and I'm like, wait, didn't, didn't someone? And I saw that, oh, he was the winner. Oh, is this why everyone's mad? Oh, no. <laughs> but, the, but the main point that I wanted to make is that it felt like nobody could have a conversation about who won and why without talking about like backstage WWE booking. Uh-oh. Like, oh, well they had to, you know, they had to put these guys over because they're the ones that signed up with the company and TJ Perkins had to win because the only other person in the semifinals that signed with the company is Grand Metalik and he doesn't speak English and this guy has to go on to Raw the next night or, you know, the next week and cut a promo and yeah. Be your inaugural so, champion and such, and all of those reasons are valid. It, but it's just sort of a bummer that that's like what we have to talk about to talk about this finale. That we can't just talk about it as wrestling, which is a shame. Because yeah, really, really, the whole thing that that carried that sort of joyous vibe of this series was that yeah, it was just all the great wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> 